0: Good morning and happy Easter. My name is Sean Sears and the lead pastor here at Grace. And uh, I probably don't have to tell you very much of the Easter story. We're probably all familiar with why this Sunday is a big deal to Christians all around the world. Uh, Even if you're not religious, you're probably familiar at least in part with the Easter story. And by the way, if that's you, if you're one of the not-so-religious people and uh, you're a part of our, our services this weekend, I wanna say thank you. It's an honor to us that of all of the churches in the world that would have loved for you to be with them uh, today, you chose to be here with us. Thank you uh, for, for this, and uh, we hope it's, it's a blessing to you, you and your family. Uh, but the brief summary of the idea of Easter is, is around the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus, very famous, probably the most famous person in all of human history. I mean, time itself is divided as all the stuff that happened before Christ and all the stuff that happened after death. I mean, that's what B.C. and A.D. stand for, right? Like, it, time itself is divided around the life of Jesus. Well, he spent the first 30 years of his life um, in, in, in obscurity. He was a, a carpenter's son who most likely his father had died soon after adolescence. He would have had to take over the family business until his half-brother's were old enough to take over, about when that would happen around the age of 30, he comes out of nowhere and starts preaching. And the things that he's saying is surprising people because he's saying that everything that the Hebrew prophets had been saying over the last 800 years was now about to happen, that God was going to keep his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that one day uh, through your family, uh, somebody would be a light to the entire Gentiles so that the whole world could be reconciled to God. And Jesus is now saying that all of this stuff is about to happen. Now, what made Jesus different from other people who, and there were a couple we know from history, who claimed to be the rescuer of mankind about this time is that Jesus did things that other just speakers weren't able to do. Jesus would, would cure people who were blind from birth, people who had Had been lame from birth, people who were deaf from birth, people who had who had uh, leprosy, right? Like Jesus would would walk over and he would heal them. They would stand up. So like Jesus was saying incredible things, but they couldn't ignore the things he was saying because of the things that he did. In John chapter three, we have this crazy story about one of the Pharisees, one of the religious leaders uh, in Israel who were most threatened by the popularity of Jesus, who comes to Jesus secretly at night. You can read the story on your own in John chapter three. But here's what he says. He says, none of us are cool with you, but all of us agree that you must be from God. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to do the things that you're doing. And that's what made Jesus so different is it wasn't just the things that he said, but it was the things that he did. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent of your sins. Turn back to God. Place your faith. Uh, in, in me to be made made right with God. Now, at the end of those three years, uh, Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, which is the southern country, but raised in Nazareth, which is the northern country around the Sea of Galilee, tells his disciples, we've got to go down to Jerusalem. It's at the end of three years, three and a half years. And he says, because now all of this stuff is about to happen. He sends his disciples ahead of him into all of the cities that he's going to be traveling through on the way to Jerusalem for the high holy week of Passover to let them know he's going to be coming. Through town. And everywhere Jesus goes, there's huge crowds of people waiting on him to get there. Now, he had sent them ahead because he knew that this was going to be his last opportunity to preach to them, that they needed to turn from sin in order to find their way back to God. And because he loved them so much, he didn't want anybody to miss that chance to do it. Now, the night before what we now celebrate as Passover Sunday, Jesus comes to Jerusalem. In the evening, he walks into town, goes to the temple, and looks around, and then he leaves. He goes back to Bethany, which is on the other side of the Mount of Olives from the city of Jerusalem to stay with, with Lazarus. That was his buddy, uh, his boy Lazarus. It was like his Airbnb. And then the next morning, uh, Jesus wakes up, tells his disciples to go find a donkey. Now, everybody is waiting on Jesus to show up in the city because word spread that he's going to be coming into town this week the high holy week, and he's going to establish the throne of his ancestor, David, in Jerusalem, and everybody is pumped. And now, when you when you hear of a prince or a king riding into town, what do you picture a prince riding on, right? Like a chariot or like a, uh, you know, a horse, a stallion. Like if I'm going to ride into town and I told you I was going to be riding on a bike like or whatever, but I'd be riding like a Harley. I wouldn't be riding a moped. You know what I mean? If I'm going to go four-wheeling, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take like a, like, a, like a truck with like a three-inch lift and oversized tires. And you know what I mean? Like, like that's what I'm going to take. Something with lights across the top and, you know, a roll cage. I'm not going to take a Subaru all-wheel drive. Right? Like there's expectations. And when Jesus comes over the top of the Mount of Olives— to descend down the road into the main gate of Jerusalem. He comes over the top riding a donkey, like a, a moped in a Harley world, right? Uh, a Subaru all-wheel drive in a sea of of monster, of monster trucks. Jesus comes over the hill in a donkey, and he's he's here to shatter expectations. And from the very first moment of the Holy Week, He's doing everything he can to communicate that he might have a different agenda than everybody else has. So he comes into town. Everybody's cheering for him. They're singing songs to him. This is on Sunday. And then you go Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, right? So it's Sunday plus five more days. Five days later, it's Friday, and they're all yelling crucify him crucify him. What happens? How do they go from Hosanna, Hosanna to crucify him in five weeks? And that's what we're going to be looking at this Easter. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go to Luke chapter 19, and we're going to start with Jesus on the donkey, because that's the first thing that he does to communicate that he has a different agenda than what we have. In Luke chapter 19, verse 36, it says, as he rode along, he's on the donkey now, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead. They made a carpet of jackets so that Jesus's donkey wouldn't have to walk on dust. There's another passage of scripture that says they were cutting down palm leaves and making a carpet of green and blankets and jackets, like their their own robes. They were laying down on the road. Like, 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 holy cow! This is. This is a huge moment. They're they're super pumped and excited for this. Uh, They laid their garments on the road ahead of him. Verse 37 says, When he reached the place where the road started down the mountain of Olives, we he just crested the top, uh, all of the followers began to shout and to sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles that they had seen. This is what they sang. Verse 38, "Uh, Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And here's why this was a problem. Because Jerusalem already had a king. His name was Herod. And King Herod had an authority. And his name was Caesar. Now the religious leaders had an arrangement with King Herod and with Rome that allowed them to continue prospering under the status quo under this arrangement. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, where Herod's palace is, people are shouting to Jesus as king, not to Herod. But what kind of assumptions did the people make when they called Jesus king? Now, Mark adds, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you kind of get four different accounts of the same Jesus, and each one of their details are complementary to each other. So Mark adds this detail in Mark chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Jesus was in the center of the procession of people, uh, and all the people around him were shouting and singing, uh, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David, praise God, praise God in the highest heavens. This is, this is what they're, They're singing uh, and they have an agenda. I would love for Jesus to be king because if Jesus is my king and if he's going to establish Jerusalem as the center of a new superpower like David's kingdom, then bro, bring that on. Because if Jesus establishes the kingdom of David in Jerusalem again, Herod's out, Caesar's out, dang it, we go back on top again. Everybody was down, down for this. Now, Luke gives us a part of the procession of Jesus into Jerusalem that Mark doesn't give us, and I think it's important for us to see. It's a very touching, private moment that Jesus is having very publicly, and that's in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. But as Jesus, as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you of all the people, Jerusalem, would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Like, I don't know if you, like, did you know that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, that as he got close to the city, he became very sad? Now imagine the picture, everybody's excited around him, they're all shouting his name they're cheering and they're making up songs impromptu, like spontaneous singing. And people are picking up the chants from other people around them and they're taking off their jackets. And like this, it's this huge moment for everybody. But Jesus has a different agenda. And because he knows what his agenda is and he knows how different it is from their agenda, he begins to cry. Because he realizes, he recognizes that once they find out why he's coming into town, they're going to reject him. And out of love for them, he mourns this. Like he's genuinely broken in his heart because he knows the consequences that each one of them individually will face if they reject why God had sent him and if they walk away from the agenda God wants for their lives. That's why he was crying. So everybody's all pumped. It's Palm Sunday. Jesus is here. So what was it that he said that communicated to them that they had a different agenda than what he did? And it's what he did as soon as he got into town and then it was one of the first things he began to teach, after he did what he did, and we're going to look at that in Luke chapter, Luke chapter nineteen. Um, here's the first of two things that Jesus did that clarified his agenda versus theirs. I'll just tell you what it is up front. It's this: that Jesus came to fix the brokenness that was in them more than the brokenness around them, or said this way. Jesus came. Easter is here to fix the brokenness that is in you more than the brokenness that's around you. Luke chapter 19, verse 45, here's how I know this. Then Jesus entered the temple. This is right after he comes into the city. So he goes through the gates of Jerusalem. He gets off the donkey. And where does everybody think Jesus should go? Everybody thinks if Jesus is going to establish the throne of King David, he's going to go to where? The palace, because the palace is where the throne is. And it's not a descendant of David that's sitting on the throne of the kingdom of Israel. It's Herod who's sitting there. But when Jesus gets into the city, he doesn't go to the palace. He goes to the what? He goes to the temple. So Jesus is expected to turn right and go over there. But instead, Jesus comes into the city and he turns left and heads over there. Now people are wondering what he's doing. He goes to the temple... And he began to drive out the people selling the animals for sacrifices. One of the other passages of scripture, it's really cool. You could find it yourself. So that when Jesus had come into the city secretly the night before and looked around the temple, that he went home and the Bible said that he fashioned a whip by hand. Jesus custom built a whip and had actually brought that with him on the donkey. And you know, nobody was expecting that. When they saw him riding on the donkey. But it's what he brought with them. He goes into the temple. He drives out the people selling animals for sacrifices. Verse 46. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a a den of thieves. And after that, he taught daily in the temple. We're going to get to one of the things that he taught. But the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him from the very first thing that he did. He walks into the temple and the first thing that he does is rather than clearing house in the palace, he clears house, cleans house in the temple. But they, verse 48, says they could think of nothing because all the people hung onto every word that he said. So they're all excited because they finally get to get rid of Rome. They get to get rid of Herod. At least that's what they expected. But when Jesus goes into the city, he goes in a completely different direction They wanted Jesus to cleanse the palace of Herod, but Jesus was more interested in cleaning the temple of God. And and here's how that relates to you and me. Because before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the dwelling place of God was in a physical location. It was in the temple. And after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus now says that God's Holy Spirit has been sent by God to dwell in you. And when you turn from your sin to begin following Jesus... You then become the temple. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 acknowledges when it says this. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? The point I want you to get is that God has always been more interested in cleaning up the inside of you than fixing all of the things around you. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, Jesus is teaching. He says this, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean. But if I'm going to be completely honest, I don't know if that's the Jesus I want either. In that same way, some people come to faith for what they can get out of it, but Jesus is more interested in what you become because of it. What you and I forget is that God knows what we don't know. He sees what we can't see. When I come to God, what I'm coming to God for is for God to fix my marriage. When I come to God, I want God to keep me from getting in trouble for what I just did and I'm really scared, so I came to God so that he rescues me from the consequences of my actions. I don't want him to change my heart about my actions. I want him to change the consequence of them, if I'm gonna be completely honest. I'm I'm coming to God because my grandmother has cancer, so I'm gonna start going to church and I'm gonna start praying so that God begins doing what I want God to do. What I want God to do is I want God to kick Herod out of his palace. But what Jesus is more interested in is changing the motivation of my heart. He's not interested in removing Herod from the palace as much as he is, removing the dirt from my temple. See, we come to our religion, we come to our faith with an agenda. Look at the way we pray. I don't pray, God change me into the man that you want me to be. What I pray is, give me this, give me this, do this, do this, I'm probably not the only person who prays this way, am I right? Like, this is who we are. We are no different than the people that are in the temple. What I want Jesus for is to fix everything else out here that makes me uncomfortable, just like the Jews of Jesus's day. And if I'm going to be completely honest, there's a very good chance that by Friday, I would have been the one who was also chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Because the alternative would be that I would have to be comfortable with crucifying me. I don't want to put to death my agenda, so I'd rather put to death him. I'm no different than them. But the biggest threat to me is not the sin around me, it's the sin that is in me. There's a famous Christian author, his name is Ern McManus, who wrote a book called The Way of the Warrior. And in that book, he has this quote. He says, we have no peace within us, so we can't generate peace around us. We struggle with envy because we want the life that we don't have. We struggle with greed because we want what we don't possess. We struggle with insignificance because we've made our value dependent on the opinion of others. And we shuffle, struggle excuse me, with identity because we don't know who we are outside of what we do. We struggle with loneliness because we are searching for love rather than giving it. That is why my heart needs to change. And this is why I need Jesus. That was the first thing that he did. And from then on, they were just like, skip him. Let's find a way to kill him. that was all the leaders of the people. It wasn't the people. Here's what Jesus said to the people that made it easy for them to go with the leaders when they turned on Jesus. In Luke chapter 20, this is in the next chapter. It says this, now in verse nine, Jesus turned to the people and he told them this story. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers and moved to another country to live for several years. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. but The farmers attacked the servant, beat him up and sent him back empty handed. Verse 11, so the owner sent another servant, but they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. A third man was sent by the landowner, and they wounded him and chased him away. What will I do? The owner asked himself. 'I, I know what I'll do. I'll send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to his estate Let's kill him and keep the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. Then Jesus ends his story, his teaching to the crowd, to the people. And he says, what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them? In this story, God is the man who owns the vineyard. And we are the tenant farmers. The farmer's problem was that they viewed this arrangement differently than the way the landowner Viewed the arrangement. They saw themselves as owners of the crop when really the crop was never theirs. They didn't own the land, they didn't own the grapes, they didn't own the homes they lived in. They were borrowers. They weren't, they were stewards and managers, not owners. The problem is that the farmers stopped recognizing their responsibility to the landowner. And then in the story, the landowner gives them a million chances to change, to rearrange their lives around this appropriate relationship and they never did. And this brings me to the second thing that Jesus did and that's this. Jesus came to prioritize, excuse me, to rearrange our priorities and change the way we live our lives. So what is the landowner supposed to do? That's what Jesus says. So what do you think should happen next. Verse 16, I'll tell you, here's what he'll do. He will come and he'll kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Then the listeners protested and said, how terrible that such a thing should ever happen. The listeners protested. Verse 17, Jesus looked at them and said, then what does this scripture mean? And then he quotes the scripture, He says, then then what do you think this scripture means? And then he uses a Hebrew scripture that they were all familiar with and says, "This this story is an illustration of what this scripture means. So he tells them this story about the farmer and the tenants, and then the tenants kill the farmer's son. What do you think should happen? They don't answer. So he says, the landowner kills them because they killed his son. He said, that's a horrible thing to happen. He said, then what do you think this means? And then he quotes from the Hebrew scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. The stone that the builders rejected, the stone that the people reject has become the cornerstone or the center stone around which the rest of the entire house should be arranged and built. Everyone, verse 18, who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone that it falls on. Why would Jesus, why would he be so confrontational? And I, I, I think I have an answer. And I think because he was giving them one last, it's connected to the donkey ride. When it comes into the city and he's crying because he realizes every one of them are going to reject him. And he knows the ultimate consequence of their rejection, of their only path back to God is that they would spend the rest of their life disconnected from God. And if they die in that state, they enter eternity disconnected from God. So just like when Jesus left the north country and sent his disciples to tell everybody in all the towns to come out and meet him so that they could get one more chance, he's in the city of Jerusalem talking to everybody, and he gives them one more chance again. But this time, he says, you need to understand the full consequences of your decision To reject God as the owner of your life, the master of your soul, and the captain of your heart. That's what he says. And he says this because he loves them and he wants to warn them of the consequences of rejecting the authority of God in their life. And that's why Jesus wept on Palm Sunday. And I think that that's the reason why Jesus weeps when he sees us today. Because the message hasn't changed we don't want God to change our hearts, I want God to change my circumstances, I want God to give me a job, I want him to give me a wife, I want him to change my wife, I want him to help me get out of this arrangement with my wife, I want God to change my relationship status, I want God to get rid of my debt, I want God to make me successful, I want God to keep me healthy, I want God to do to do to do to do to do, and to give and to give and to give and to give and to give, and I've got a long list and so do you. What I don't want is for God to change this. I want him to change all of that. The second part of the message is still true, that I want God to recognize my autonomy from him rather than rearranging my life around him. If we're going to be completely transparent and honest, some of us have walked away from God because he didn't do what we said because my life didn't turn out the way I wanted. I get mad. I blame God for the pain and the hurt in the world. And I treat him as though I'm the landowner and he's my farmer tenant, is what I do. I treat God as though he owes me. Now the truth is, my whole life is borrowed. I am a tenant farmer of Sean. I'm not the one who planted Sean into the world. I'm not the one who harvests Sean at the end of his 70, 80. I'm hoping it's 90 to 100 years. As long as I can go to the bathroom by myself, I'm fine being on planet earth, right? Like when I when I can't do that, I'm I'm ready for Jesus to harvest me, right? But everything about me is borrowed. I am a tenant. I didn't choose my hair color, I mean, I know you can choose your hair color, but it's not really your hair color, right? I didn't choose my personality. I didn't choose my IQ. I didn't choose where I was born. I didn't choose when I was born. I didn't, and I don't, I don't choose my gifts and abilities. I don't choose my physical, like I don't, and everything that I am now and everything that I have now is only because I leveraged land that belonged to the landowner. I really am a steward. I'm a tenant farmer. And all God is saying is, everything you have belongs to me. Everything that you are comes from me. And I believe that God has the right to expect that we recognize his authority in our lives. But we, we were no different than they were then. I don't want God to have authority over me. I want God to recognize my authority over him. I don't want to rearrange my life around his agenda. I want him to make my agenda his agenda. Like nothing has changed at all. We're still still the same way. And if you've walked away from God because he didn't do what you told him to do, then that would be evidence that you and I are more like the tenant farmers who killed the farmer's son, than what we would care to admit. Now Jesus predicted that most people would not want what Jesus really came to offer. In the Sermon on the Mount, three years earlier, one of the first sermons he ever preached, he said this, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad. Its gate is wide. Why would God pave the road to hell wide? Why would he make the gate wide? And what Jesus says is that it's not God that made the road wide or the gate wide. He says the highway to hell is broad and the gate is wide because of the many people who choose that path. If you've ever taken a shortcut through the woods, you can tell how many people take this shortcut by how wide the path is. Am I right? Like, if it's really narrow, didn't just one or two people take this path. If it's really wide and there's no grass and it's hard-packed earth, you know, there's a lot of people that take that path. And it's not like the person that owns the land made the path whatever size it is. The number of people determine the size of the path. And Jesus just says, I want to be honest with you, the, the path to hell is broad and the gate is wide because most people are like the tenant farmers in my story and they don't want to recognize God as the authority in their life. And then it goes on to say in verse 14, "'But the gateway to life is very narrow, "'and the road is difficult, "'and only a few ever find it.'" Well, the people had had enough of this. That's why five days later they're chanting, "'Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him.'" Pilate agrees, Jesus is beaten Tortured, they place the cross beam on his shoulder, and he has to go from the basement of Herod's palace. He ended up in the temple anyway, but it was to be abused by it, not to take authority over it. And then he has to walk from there all the way to where he was crucified. He falls down. Another man is. If you've seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, you're familiar with the story. If you're raised in the Catholic Church, I know you're familiar with the Stations of the Cross, like. This isn't anything that's unknown to most of us, unless it's new. So this might be new information, but he gets all the way there. He dies, the Bible says, as a substitute payment for the death each one of us owe, a holy and righteous God, for turning our back on the creator of life. He's buried he's put in the ground on Friday. He's buried on Saturday and then buried on Sunday. But on Sunday morning, he raises from the dead with new life. And that's what makes it possible. Our debt has now been paid off between us and God, which gives us access to a relationship, to right standing with God. And what you need to know from this is that Jesus laid down his life to create the road back to God. And we lay down our lives to find that road back to God. This Easter, you have the opportunity to change the narrative that was written on that first Palm Sunday. You could be one of the reasons why Jesus doesn't weep when he enters the city, but he gets to celebrate also. The difference on his weeping or his celebration is what you do with his agenda. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says this, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. I don't know why we got it in our head or how we got it into our head that I can be good enough to go to heaven because if you, all you had to do was be good enough and if you could be good enough, then why in the world did Jesus need to go through all of that stuff? Just be good. But the truth is, I, I can't be good enough to never break God's commands. If you're familiar with the commandments, how many of them have you broken? I've gone through this before in other teachings. We're not going to do this morning. I think I've broken all 10 commands. So I know when I stand before God, if it was up to me to be innocent of breaking his commands, I'm guilty and I know where I go. I spend an eternity without God in hell. That's what I would deserve. But I'm thankful to God that it's not by obeying the commands of the law that make me right. That's all Romans 3 says. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are true. Verse 21, but now God has shown us the way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, which is awesome, because if it was that, I've got no shot. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Verse 22, for we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done. For everyone has sinned, everybody has fallen short of God's glorious standard, yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight, and he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin, and people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood, and rose from the dead. If that describes where you're at in your spiritual journey, then in a few minutes I'm going to give you the opportunity to just tell God. I acknowledge, Jesus, that your death, burial, and resurrection was God's offering, a substitute for the debt I owe. And while, Jesus, I would never ask you to pay for my sins, since you volunteered, I'd be crazy to ignore it. And dear God in heaven, if what you want to change most is the sin in me rather than the sin around me, I'm yours have at it. And of what you want me to do next is declare you as the land owner of my field, dear God in heaven. My grapes are yours. I am your man for life. I am your girl for life. Make that your prayer. And there's a verse that says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone. So my hope is that when Jesus looks at each one of us, And then all of us collectively, he isn't brokenhearted because of our rejection, but that he's got a song to sing. There's even a verse that says that God sings over the redeemed. That's awesome. That I can pray the kind of prayer and I can make the kind of decision right now today that would cause Jesus to write a song to God. That's stinking awesome. My hope is that just as Jesus was raised from the dead with new life, you walk away from today's service with new life also. And I'm going to give you that chance now. So if you would, please bow your head with me. Dear God, I love you with all of my heart. And I know that each one of us come to that Palm Sunday morning with an agenda. Each one of us have different expectations when it comes to religion when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to our faith, when it comes to the idea of you. But dear God in heaven, help us to recognize that you aren't subject to our agenda uh, like we are subject to yours. I pray God that you would search our hearts, search our temple, clean house, wipe out all of the sin, turn over any of the tables, dear God in heaven, change me from the inside out. Can you make that your prayer? Jesus, take away my sin, forgive me for all of it. I accept that your death, your burial, and your resurrection from the dead with new life is so that I could have a new and different life also. I want that. Make that your prayer. Dear God, I want new life. Then make the next part of your prayer. I am all in. I recognize, God, that with my life, I am a tenant farmer and you are the landowner. All of me belongs to all of you. I am all in for the rest of me. Can you make that your prayer? Dear God, I pray that you are pleased and pumped about the prayers that we're making in our heart right now. I ask this in the name of your amazing and precious son, Jesus. Amen.